Hello and welcome to the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish and I will be your host. This is the weekly podcast that helps women pause in their busy lives, drop into the heart, and remember their next right step. I am so happy that you're here. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. This is Dr. Avine Banish. I'm your host. This podcast drops on the winter solstice, which is one of my favorite days of the year. It is the day when we look for the light, when for the next few days, the light remains um, stable in the sky, and then the days begin to get longer. So even though we're just entering winter, it's really this very hopeful moment because the light is returning and the days from now on get longer until the summer solstice. And so um, I hope that you find some way to celebrate and to honor that today. Um, this week on the podcast, I'm really thrilled to have Jessica Patterson as my guest. Jessica is the founder and owner of Root Center for Yoga and Sacred Studies here in Colorado Springs. Um, she is one of my teachers. She has taught numerous students um, in the art form of yoga, and I would say the art form of just honoring life. And I think you'll really enjoy our conversation. Before we get started, I just wanted to mention that the wholehearted weight loss circle begins January 3rd. And so if you are feeling called or stirred to shift your relationship with your weight and your body and really shift your mindset um, and your thoughts around that, um, I would love to have you join us as we launch an eight-week circle, January 3rd. We will meet weekly via Zoom, and um, you'll have one-on-one -on -one time with me each week in addition to that. And um, we had great success um, from the people who embarked on the fall circle. And so I would love, if it's something that you're being called to, for you to check it out. It is on my way, It's on my website, and I will link the sign-up and all the information in the show notes as well. And so without further ado, here is my conversation with Jessica Patterson. Okay, welcome to the podcast this week. I'm really thrilled to have just a wonderful guest who I know is going to, this is just going to be a great conversation, Jessica Patterson. Um, she is the founder and owner of Root Center for Yoga and Sacred Studies. She is a dear friend and I consider her, um, I consider myself lucky to be one of her students. I call her teacher. Um, I finished, one of the highlights of my year was participating in um, her untraining. Jessica has a really beautiful way of creating and holding sacred space, be it in, you know, in the room at Root or um, via Zoom. So um, this year-long training that I did with her was really just a highlight, um, not just with Jessica at the helm, but with the beautiful group of people that gathered around and gathered as part of that community. So welcome, Jessica. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, me too. So this podcast was a project that I started um, a few months ago, really with this question for myself and for others of what does it really look like to live wholeheartedly? I feel like a lot of us are living um, or feeling perhaps a little fragmented and a little bit 
um, for me, it, it, when I feel stressed, I feel collapsed. And so wholehearted to me is a sense of spaciousness, is a sense of allowing my whole self to just be present, which sounds like it should be easy, but often it's it's not. So I feel like you have a lot to say on this. Could you could you just start us out by maybe speaking to that a little bit, what, what that means to you? Mm, sure. Um, well, it's interesting. I'll start with, right, how tricky it is because when we're not given the encouragement, the support, or the tools to live wholeheartedly by a culture that benefits largely in us not living wholeheartedly, right, is it and particularly the, the consumerism of this, of the dominant culture that is invested in us feeling deficient and seeking, seeking to be made whole. So it's very hard to live from a place of, as you said, fragmentation, brokenness, or a sense of deficiency. If you're living from that place and you're, and you conceive of yourself from that place and you think from that place and you feel from that place, relate from that place, it's tricky to then live in a wholehearted way. Um, so that's one thing that comes to mind is just the challenge of, because I actually think it is our intrinsic natural state. You know, you see it so often, not always given the circumstances of many people's childhood, but you see it often in children, mm-hmm. right? Um, unabashed relationship to life. And somewhere, you know, and somewhere along the way, I think we're really taught to become self-conscious, small ass, you know, and guided by the limitations of ourselves instead of conscious of who we really are, which I think gives us then that the ability to live wholeheartedly. Those sort of grand big strokes there, but um, that's what comes to mind. Mm-hmm. And how do you, you're someone who I believe does come from that place of wholeness. And I, I, I mean, part of your life's work, I feel is to help people remember their own wholeness. And so how do we begin to shift from that state of deficiency back towards wholeness, which is within all of us. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do think one of the themes, one of the things we explored in the untraining, of course, is it takes a village. And I believe that the idea that any of us, that it's all person, it's like the, the Western mythology of the rugged individual has distorted our understanding of the spiritual work around this, which is, it's not about just the individual. And so I think part of it is that we need more collective support to encourage one another to take risks, to resource one another when we do take risks. So it doesn't feel like, well, if I do this thing, I'm going to fall through the cracks. Or if I try to live according to my, you know, to that more in that inner compass that I'm not just on my own. And I think there has to be more than just a belief that there has to be actionable steps behind that where people branch out of the nuclear family as the only concern and really start to care for people and support one another across spaces. Um, and then I think within the internal, 
you know, one of the questions that I've always asked, and I believe we asked it in the end training, I can't remember, but I do ask it in all the other um, spaces like that where I get to operate is in what ways do I participate in my own stories of brokenness or deficiency? And it invites not a sense of um, my, my hope in the question, and I try to flesh it out more, is a way of making explicit the ways in which we reinforce those experiences that we have. So whether it's through <clears throat> the indoctrination of body dysmorphia and the ways in which people will then constantly police their bodies or, you know, uh, develop distorted relationships to food, like whatever it is that we begin to see our, not just complicity, because I think that that has a negative connotation, but participation, that everything is a practice. There are some of which we are conscious. There are some practices that alleviate suffering. And then there are practices that we engage in um, unconsciously that perpetuate our suffering. So I do think that that's part of it. I also think in my own, my own experience, we become more courageous. Well, I'm using courageous and I, I think it's, you know, also now the connection between to be wholehearted takes a lot of courage. Yes. Yeah. And um, I know Brene Brown made these terms, you know, sort of household spiritual work for people in thinking about courage and talking about the heart. But, you know, the word rage is in there, too. And I do think that the experiences that we have that to a certain extent break open the old form, free up that energy. And, you know, it's like a fire in the heart. And then often we can seek it, we can move toward it, but the bigger motivator for most of us and life will give us the, these deep motivations come through the things we don't seek out. And in my case, and what I witness a lot and um, is when something has irretrievably been a you know, fallen away. So either an experience, uh, something within oneself, their health status, death of a loved one. Uh, many of these experiences uh, thrust us, I think, into a place where we clarify what really matters and therefore tune in more to what we're being directed by the heart to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think that the pandemic in many ways, uh, put that in motion for people, this realization of what really matters. And for me, it, a lot of that wholehearted living and the courage to do things where there's not a sense of security or stability to do it came from profound loss and that clarification of what really matters? Why, why, why am I putting energy into things that when, when things really, um, when there's a really big challenge, aren't going to matter? So that's, I guess that's my off the cuff response. If I'm, if I'm responding, I think I'm responding. <laughs> I think so too. No, I mean, I think I completely agree with the with the pandemic, there was um, a forced, 
you know, some of it was forced, people losing jobs, people, people's lives looking so different, uncertainty, entering the liminal space, all of that. Um, and then I think, you know, we've been in this space for so long that there is also that falling away. And if we're lucky, a sense of clarity emerging. Um, yeah, I agree with that. You know, we, this podcast is going to come out on the shortest day of the year on the solstice and we're approaching the holidays and much of what you just talked about and what we've been talking about that's ongoing really with the pandemic is a sense of loss, a sense of grief. And so can you, you know, when we talk about wholeheartedness, um, when I think about that term, it's not forcing ourselves to feel any one way. It's really allowing ourselves the space to feel how we're feeling. And I think especially at this time of year, there's this dominant message that we're supposed to feel cheery and happy and, and, you know, all the things that go along with holiday. And I think a lot of people, maybe especially this year, are not feeling that way. Yeah, it's so contradictory. Mm -hmm. The imposition of a, of a feeling when it's, uh, this is actually the time of year that people struggle the most with depression, anxiety, addiction, overwhelm, aloneness, isolation, and that's in the best of times. Right. So, yeah, I think, yeah. And so what to do with that space in a sense of wholeness, right? Allowing for, for what is rising. Well, I was teaching a loss work in grief workshop yesterday, as you know, and one of the points that I make anytime we have the conversation around that is something that one, my teacher, Mark Whitwell says, which is feel more to feel better. And this understanding that actually there's a really beautiful quote and I don't have it right in front of me. Um, but, and I, I can, I'll pull it up in a minute. Mm -hmm. I, um, in fact, why don't I, can we take a minute and I'll just pull it up? Absolutely. Because it speaks to this and it gives me an entry point to flesh out what I just said that about feeling more to feel better, because that doesn't always sound, um, you know, we're often afraid of feeling what we feel. So um, Rachel Naomi Remen said, the way we deal with loss shapes our capacity to be present to life more than anything else. And the way we protect ourselves from loss may be the way in which we distance ourselves from life. So when I think about this, being shaped how we deal with loss as individuals, as families, as communities, as whatever, whichever we're looking through, and how that frames um, our ability to be present in life. And then the recognition that the more we push away the feelings that we pathologize culturally, familially as individuals, that we distance ourselves from life. And in that distancing, right, we we're, we feel less of, less of everything. And so when Mark says to feel more, to feel better, what he, and he also looks at a trajectory or offers a trajectory that isn't like the trajectory of feelings, but a recognition that underneath numbness is often fear. 
Mm-hmm. And then underneath fear is often anger or hurt, right? Which we, we hear that a lot. And that the more you dig down, eventually what you get to is grief. And as he says, for the whole shoddy deal, like it I mean, it could be my specific grief, the specific thing I'm working with, but it's also the state of the world right now, yep. grief upon grief. And so this allowance to feel what we're really feeling, again, I come back to, it takes a village. Like the more we can be with one another in the real feeling and not I often quote um, Oriah Mountain Dreamers, the invitation, right? Not move to fade it, fight it, or fix it. That's kind of like the only tools we're given in the presence of the pain of another is that it's my job to fix it or make it go away. And in that way, we devalue what that feeling is and the power of that feeling and its invitation to clarify something or reveal something or remind us of something. We're so afraid of so many of these feelings because they've been pushed into the shadow side. You know, they're the bad feeling, bad emotions or, and it's scary, right? And it's very scary for so many of us, the, the profound, the overwhelm of a feeling. And so that's where I say, I, I think it can't just be the work of an individual, but the work of a culture or the work of a community to normalize the messy feelings, you know, as you said, the messages in which, which were inundated this time of year are messages of cheer. And even the news is constantly talking about family gatherings. Well, for a lot of people, there is no, there is no one, there's no one to come home to, and there's no one to go and see. And that it highlights the sense of isolation, which, um, of course, compounds whatever suffering or whatever pain is already present. And and I think, you know, part of the magic of that untraining was just that. It was the alchemy that seemed to emerge when a group could witness just someone feeling or expressing what they were feeling rather than trying to fix them or cheer them up or, you know, it, it was a sense of being seen that I think we rarely truly experience in the right. world. And it consists, you know, there's continuity to it. I think we have um, localized moments, you know, we have moments where we see one another, um, but when we don't have the continuity of relationship where you know that it's a place or, you know, it could be in the context of a singular relationship or a collective relationship where you know that you will be seen and heard and held, right? And as is, and that there's no requirement, there's no prerequisite for your mood or the way you look or what you're going through for it to be valid. And I think that's the deeper, right? This, if it's about that all feelings are actually valid. Now the translations we make of those feelings, and of course this becomes the work, so much of the work that I do uh, is, the translation that becomes identity, for example, can be very different than when I'm heeding what the heart has to say, the heart of who we are, by whatever name we call that, and to heed that and as though it's a dialogue, as opposed to, you know, a character assignment. Now I'm this. Mm-hmm. All will, and and so there's a, it's like we, I think of this often as losing our mother tongue. 
that the intimacy with our own, with the information that's arising within us suddenly becomes either reduced to just an emotional label where there's no further inquiry and we just sort of abide by the script that that label gives us and go into habitual reactions. you know, or it often, it just, it gets pathologized. So I think the other ways that it invites us into what is, what is the information that I'm getting and how does that lead me to my next step that may be really counter to what the logic in which I've been trained in my family or my culture might say. I think about this a lot. I, for example, this is a, a concrete example. I was teaching at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, forever ago. And uh, in that process, my father had died and a bunch of things, uh, you know, had fallen away. And I had this steady, stable job that, you know, for the most part on a piece of paper and to a lot of, to a lot of external gaze is like, this is a good job. Mm-hmm. And I was good at it. You know, I was up for promotions and uh, all that. And but I remember sitting on my back porch, gazing out at the mountains and let myself consider, like feel into going back, which would be the, right? That would have been the, the applauded thing. That would have been the most supported choice. The quote unquote, right thing, accepted thing. Yep. And supported, you know, by people in my life. Uh, and as I sat, I just, I felt the no. It's probably the, the where this began for me, this ability uh, that I think we all have to really heed it because then the, the decision was count, counter to everything that offered security, stability, validation to a certain extent. And, you know, I guess on some level a claim, I, you know, in a really small pond way, but, and, and so, it's like any muscle, the more you use it, the stronger it gets, where there's less of the deliberation, like, oh gosh, this is pointing this way. It's like the scarecrow in, you know, Wizard mm-hmm. of Oz, this way, this way. But you, as, there's less of that. You may feel the strong yes or the strong no or this way or stop or whatever it is. And it might contradict everything else that is loudly blaring all the time. But I think the more you, use that muscle. And and that's where I feel like we can really support one another in it to be, to heed what's there, to heed its direction or to heed its offering. You know, this is what we're feeling. Right. So from that felt no root was born. Root was born out of a very different situation of tumult and pain uh, without I mean, I don't, I don't feel like all the details are that useful, but uh, so I was at a crossroad. Uh, I'd entered into a doctoral program. I'd already been teaching um, for eight years, nine years, something like that. And in our community and went through a really horrible situation. Um, I had a miscarriage. Um, that I wasn't even aware of that that's what was happening and went through a really devastating um, breakup where 
a lot of what I thought was true was revealed not to be. And, and so, you know, it was a really challenging situation because that my every instinct at that point was peace out. I'm out of here. I don't want to be here. I'm going to go do this other thing that I'm really good at. And I don't, I didn't feel like, like, you know, sticking it out and something in me that in, in, in entire contradiction of fleeing was rooting. And I, and it was a huge risk at that time. You know, there's, again, there's no partner, there's no financial backing, there's nothing. It was just the, this movement toward that. And with a lot of community support, you know, people who did help to make it all happen. Um, so similar, you know, like I, the logics, and this is like the logics then of my reactive pain, the pain or the anger or the, uh, kind of unraveling of an old sense of self that wanted then a new, a whole new world to live in, you know, it, and, and I, I see this all the time in people, of course, right? Like I see that like anywhere, but here feeling. Yeah. yeah. And, in, and, and straight. So I birthed something instead. I wanted to burn it all down, right? Like the instinct was to burn it all down mm-hmm. and to walk away. And instead I created, and that became for me, one of the most clear, um, actualizations of a teaching that I knew, but maybe knew at a much more surface level until that, which is the act of creating anything can be what helps us in the darkest of times. And it doesn't, right. It doesn't have to be an obvious creation. Not everybody should be opening yoga centers. I can say that, right. Or not everybody's going to have a podcast and not everybody's going to be a painter or a writer, but that is the process of creating validates our life force And it gives voice to that, which I would call that divine source that is so uniquely speaking through each of us and moving through each of us and that there is a creation to be, to be had. And it's not about the product, but this process that we are, we are beings of creation and life and not destruction and limitation, Mm -hmm. but of course, it's like, this is what I mean. These situations for me were being foisted into clarity or foisted into listening to that voice because everything else fell silent, right? Fall silent in, in grief in particular. And you have, I think, this opportunity to heed something that maybe in everyday life muffles it. And muffles it to the point that, you know, we actually often need to prove to ourselves this innate voice. And we, and we take so uh, casually for granted that the logics in which we're operating are true. You know, like we're taught to think certain ways. And so we assume that that's truth, but somehow we need convincing that the inner truth is truth, And it's so distorted. Well, and I'm sure, I mean, I've had times in my life, I'm sure you have too, where you didn't heed that voice and we create great suffering for ourselves. 
we think for a while that, you know, by just maintaining the status quo that somehow it's going to be better or sometimes there's fear of blowing things up that it's just not the right time it's not convenient but i find that if we if we ignore that it starts as, as a whisper and it comes eventually as a two by four like yeah. it's yeah. going to it's going to make its way to us it's it's somewhat how much are we going to participate <laughs> or yeah are we going willingly or are we going to be taken and you know and there's value in all of these processes right and there's and there's such we have such compassion for ourselves and others in the hesitations and the the hunkering down the fear of doing anything the paralysis that happens or the uh, what in yoga is uh, the abhinivesha the fear of change trying to hold everything still uh, the problem is that the energy continues to accumulate. And so it becomes, right, the whisper becomes a roar, becomes the, the two boy four. And it's patient. I mean, we're talking about energy to a certain extent that predates these bodies and has cosmic time frame, you know, older than geological time frame. This is, you know, the atoms of which we are composed are incredibly patient have borne witness to everything. So, you know, it can feel like we're getting everything in a row and or, you know, plan, planning our perfect future. And that energy continues to accumulate. And when it's time comes, the way I often think of it, just as a, as a visual for me, or uh, it's, I guess it's a tangible for me, um, is how... And some people might use the word soul. That's not really my word, but it's a useful word for this, that when the soul outgrows the form, the form has to go. Or you keep insisting, you try to stuff the form, you would say the prana, the life force, the vitality, this, this spirit that you are uniquely, that no one will ever, ever, ever be again. And it's never going to happen again. And we try to keep stuffing it back into an old skin. And the form gives way and some, you know, we can, we can be a participant with that transformation, begin to dance with it, which I do think is the profundity of grief, because in so many ways, it just lays waste to a lot of the extraneous. I mean, in part, just because you're exhausted in grief and you just don't have the energy for a lot of other things. But in that is this clarification, maybe to a certain extent that then we become participants, or at least maybe by participants, I mean, we become more curious about the ways in which we're changing and we become maybe more um, uh, compassionate about how these changes are affecting us and those around us. And it's not always graceful, but it can be more graceful than, you know, fighting tooth and nail against the inevitable, which is transformation. I love that. And I see it really doesn't, it also thankfully doesn't require that we have the whole picture before us. It's, it's like, we just have to be willing to open to something. That's it. And in fact, I think the more we think, you know, a lot of the, the, the trick with it all, as I've experienced it is all we can project forward is what we've experienced before. So it is, it is a limitation. And we don't need to see the whole path. 
you know, and in fact, when we do, we begin, we, we stop seeing opportunities. We stop seeing the call into life because we're so set on our path, you know, so the destination. And I do think it's that attachment to things, looking a particular way or being a particular way that creates and compounds the suffering. I mean, that's for sure a teaching in the yogic tradition that one's attachment to things, um, Right. That's Charlie. Charlie wants to support your statement. <laughs> he's he's attached. He's definitely got some attachments. <laughs> but yeah, so that I think about that when I, I don't need to see. I, I think of it this way. You know, here we, you and I both live here in the Colorado Springs area, and. Um, like this, you see Pike's Peak, for example, we all see Pike's Peak from somewhere. And we can easily conceive of saying, let's, hey, Avian, let's get off this Zoom and let's go climb Pike's Peak. We say, okay. And you, you swing by and pick me up and we start going. And then we see that coffee shop and we decide we want a hot cocoa and we stop in there. And then as we are walking to the coffee shop to get the hot cocoa, we see something else. And then Right. Then we start to make our way back toward the trail, but we see something else. And the whole point isn't it's that it's an orientation of a view, you know, orients us, but it's not always. So we may have an orientation. Somebody may say, um, you know, they're they're looking to make a certain change in their lives. It doesn't have to come to fruition in the way they're envisioning, but that it becomes, you know, a, a, a something on the map that you, you, that helps guide that you're going to take a step in a direction. Mm-hmm. And from the moment you take that first step, the adventure begins, you know, because the first step was it. And then the first step changes the whole perspective. And we may never reach Pike's Peak, but if it weren't for Pike's Peak, we may never have taken the journey. And so I think about that a lot, how we can have a kind of idea of something, but the trick is to not get attached to everything looking that way, but just letting it call you out of where you've been. With a divine sense of play, perhaps, like you're willing to play with the universe. Yeah. And that is, you know, comes to this, something I often say, and I'm not certainly not the only one, but uh, right. We're the universe having an experience of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not always playful in a joyful way, right? There's the play that is also the, the play of the depths of our emotional experience and our connection to one another. I mean, of course, the depths of the emotion reveals our connection to one another, but, but it is. And I think it's the, how many ways can we say yes to life? I have, there's a wonderful teacher in the yoga therapy program, someone I have just, I adore this woman, Durga Leela, who teaches the yoga of recovery. And um, she's Scottish and she often, I mean, every time I've you know, facilitated the program, I've heard her say this so many times, but she talked about how in the United States, we ask uh, if, if you're asked to do something, the, the kind of response is no, why? And what happens when we begin to shift into yes, how? And when life is giving us opportunities, 
that don't always, they don't always look like opportunities. So opportunities may be like a hard word because, uh, you know, some of my, some of the biggest forks in my road came from deeply painful, tragic things. So I wouldn't, I'm not like, oh, the opportunity, but what happens in that undoing of an old sense of self is a fork in the road. Who am I going to be from this point forward? And so when the response is a kind of yes, and then how, and and it's not just, I don't think it's just a, a, a faded way, like yes, how, and then the whole quote unquote universe shows you how, but it's also the question, we ask one another, how do I do this and seek the help and support of others so that we can say yes to life and yes to the forks in the road and yes to those times where we're stumbling instead of it always being a no, why? Because I want to insist on things staying the same. Mm -hmm. One guarantee that we have is none of it's going to stay the same. And it's no less beautiful. It's no less beautiful just because it doesn't stay the same. But you have to kind of, I think, develop an ability to have one's love or deep reverence for the world be something that is lit within always and not contingent on what it looks like. Otherwise, it's just, it's, it's unbearable. Absolutely. And the hearth at root um, so the the yoga the yoga space at root has this beautiful hearth altar that always has candles and flowers it you know blooms in various states perfectly you know fresh white roses and roses that have dried up and fallen and it's all beautiful mm-hmm. it's such a beautiful representation of that and it's very intentional you know it it's not an aesthetic. Mm-hmm. It's a, right. It's a, it's the process of devotion to what am I devoted? I, I am not devoted to things having to stay the same. You become devoted to right. Being, what happens as that fresh rose becomes dried up and wilted and our, and our impulse to discard things for their impermanence when impermanence is actually the thing that's built into what we love the most win one another, the impermanence. And so the process of letting something die upon the altar and see its beauty too, and be called into that reminder, which is of course part of part of the orientation of an altar is to call consciousness into, into something like a reminder. Um, but yeah, and I think it's I think it's a good practice for us to have, you know, to watch something move through its own birthright, which is we can't always be fruiting and flowering. And and that doesn't diminish the beauty and the power of of every moment. I mean, and you know not to put too heavy a hand on it, but it is me. And I tend to think like, it's a really good reminder given we will lose everyone we love in these forms. But you either, you know, like for me is how do you cultivate a relationship that's right? 
like I was saying to you before we started, how heartbreaking it can be for me to drive in areas where I grew up that are now subdeveloped and the land all torn up and, and ironically often named after the very things that have been destroyed to build it, you know, like Antelope Way in a field, you know, that is now cement or, you know, Forest Circle where the forest was clear cut to build the houses. Um, and this is, this, this can be very, very heavy in my heart because I feel such a deep relationship to the land. And I think it's so representative of our discarding um, future-oriented culture that there's not much of a sense of reverence for the here and now. And, um, and so what helps is that to feel that that reverence or that love or that connection to something is not contingent on it always looking the same. And to be able to feel into it. And then, of course, it has deepened in such a profound way my appreciation for the spaces that remain untouched by the development and the paving and the build it and they will come attitude. So all of that, the transient, no less beautiful, but not the place to, like if, if we're all the time identifying with the things that shift, then we're all the time shifting. But when we identify with the thing that is observing all the shifts, it's a very different experience. Becoming the witness. Yeah. Watching it change before us. Yeah. And not in a dissociative, like not in a disconnected way, but in the true, like the eye of the, of the lover and the beloved, you know, an engaged, an engaged, not a witness that's detached, but a, but that, which is that, which is looking out through the infinite portals of all experience. And so while one experience is evanescent and, and temporary, another experience is, um, has a kind of has a, has a kind of steadiness and a kind of eternity, and it's just it's like for me that that sense infinite infinite uh, loci, you know, infinite ways, and it's the over-identification with one, with one sense of self or with one experience, then suddenly, then you become acutely aware of how fast it all changes. And the, again, the tools that we're given are to hold on to things and make, try to stay the same, but from a different vantage point, still, still anchored in a sense of self and relationship to the world, it unfurls differently, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. And like for us, you know, I have four kids and that's really present in the holidays as you watch your children grow. And we were joking about how I uh, fairly forced my children to dress up in um, pajama, matching pajamas. I have, you know, two college age kids and two, uh, two teenagers and um, that wanting to right, holding on to what was, and at the same time, acknowledging it's completely different and both are beautiful. Exactly. Like, and we can have, I think sometimes too, this is when I, 
I feel like that we get caught up in the emotional labels because I could say we get nostalgic, you know, we feel that nostalgia, but I, I sometimes don't think it's like we need to go deeper than the label because in that nostalgia that we feel for a bygone time of, of land, of family members, of our own, I was was doing something today. I was writing to somebody and recognizing that I'm coming up on my 47th birthday, but it took me a little time because I, for some reason, thought I was going to be 46 this summer, not 47. And, you know, I still think of myself like 24, Yeah, yep. <laughs> whatever the nostalgia, whatever it is, but like deeper than that, deeper than that is something else that I don't think we always have the language for. So it gets boxed up and put on the shelf with a lot of other things that kind of, I don't know. I think there's a deeper poetry and a deeper beauty that, that can hold more of that simultaneous, uh, a kind of sorrow, a kind of grief and an absolute intimate present day connection. Which again, you know, just grief is on my mind because that's what I'm teaching. And there's a reason I teach at this time of year. But when I think about one of the principles that I came, really, it was sort of given to me in grieving the sudden death of my father, who was nine years older than I am now. So this is, these are these moments, you know, um, but I realized, you know, my father was an imperfect man. And did lots of things, particularly when he was younger and around the time my parents divorced that, you know, that it's it just, we're imperfect and, 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 and messy, uh, messy animals. And, and yet it's really easy in our, in our, in the ways we experience time as linear to hold one another accountable and to interact with one another, just who we are most recently. And the thing about death like like anything placed into the fires of life is that the form the form is transformed but the energy is freed up and suddenly I was acutely aware and it was sudden this was not like a gradual thing for me it was it was a very sudden moment in my grieving process around my father that I the recognition that now he was simultaneously the infant he had been the young boy he had been the rebellious teenager he had been, the academic he had been, the husband, husbands he had been, the father he had been, you know, and it was the ability to have relationship with someone in what I think of this sacred time and space where you're not just interacting with the most recent facet or just one part of them, but the whole of them. And it's something like that. You think about your kids growing up, me, my, I'm a kid growing up and, <clears throat> or the land being developed or whatever it is, but that we, it's when we're operating under the illusion of the linear progression that we lose access to the fullness of something and the reactualizable within time that we can touch into and be in relationship with any of it. And these are more than just nice things. These are really, these are real. This is real. This is why trauma is held in the body in a particular way. And so too is the beauty and the magnificence of life. It's like, you know, all this, 
pixie dust stored inside of us that we operate like it's not there. When I look at, you know, the sort of the, um, the substance of the universe that we're in as love. And to me, that was just so beautifully expressed, like being able to hold multiple perspectives of a relationship of a human of the land is like the highest expression of love, really. Right. It comes back to that spaciousness of which you spoke in the beginning. What it is wholehearted is also allowing the whole heart of another whatever that so-called other is because how one say within the dynamics of an interpersonal relationship how one of a we may conceive of ourselves and be experiencing ourselves in a particular moment very differently than how someone else is perceiving us and what they're expecting of us as a result of that i think how love is that ability to i think that not han said this that is to love in a way where the, where the other feels free mm-hmm. and, and that like free, like that, that love, or when we're talking about why it takes a village to love someone or something enough to let it grow and change and die, you know, because that of course, depending on one's belief system for sure, but even just on a pure, for me, just a purely scientific perspective that the energy, all of that is still there, right? Second law of thermodynamics is- Einstein said that, right? Energy is neither created nor destroyed. And, and, and of course that's proven out in so many, any, many ways, but I think it's that when we're in relationship to that and one another, we're more willing to let the transformation happen within ourselves and within the relationship and within whatever the context is, to let something change and transform because it's the deepest expression of love. Like like why we should be divesting in our own um, white privilege, you know, which is scary to a lot of people because it's, right, it's letting go of something, but that transformation is the old, these are acts of love. And in a deep sense of love for oneself too, because So long as I'm operating in a way where someone else has to not feel like whether it's my partner or my neighbor or someone I've never met and never will meet. But if if my so-called happiness requires a diminishment of their lives, we are all diminished. Mm -hmm. I do think we feel that that that's part of that deeper sorrow that. the heaviness of the heart where sometimes that wholehearted means the whole of it, all of it, the heaviness, the pain and one's own sense of what it is to be whole and full often means letting go of parts of us that require that might on the surface seem to live in a way that gives more safety or more material joy or more whatever, but is at the expense of, of something bigger to which we are more deeply and have a longer term relationship. And that work um, must be done in community. It's almost, it's like, we can't, we can't hold it all ourselves, nor can we see it. We almost need the other to be the reflection of 
of our biases, of what we're missing, of our blind spots. Absolutely. And to carry us when we're hurting, like what we were talking about in what happened with the untraining, just the feeling of being seen, being heard, being welcomed into presence in silence, whatever it was. But yeah, I absolutely think, I mean, this is where I'm so, I just, it's like, it starts, it's a ripple, right? Like in each of us as individuals where it starts to ripple out, how we're responding to one another and how we're responding to the struggle or the pain or the complexity and the unpredictability and the, of, of, of life. And instead of in subtle and insidious ways, reinforcing the old paradigm, like um, I don't know a good example. I, I mean, I know lots of good examples, but maybe uh, one would be when, say, for example, if I say, just heads up, everyone, because if I say I'm really busy, what's not useful to say to me is busy is good, but it happens all the time. Right. Because what I'm saying is I feel overwhelmed and I feel like, right, too much is coming at me. And the response of busy is good is a, is a reifying of an old paradigm that then pathologizes the overwhelm, which is a natural response to what's happening. So whether that's, you know, someone's grief and we try to take, fix that, or it's our discomfort with so many things. So I feel like the more we uh, anchor ourselves into circumstances where people have a different experience in response to what they're sharing or experience or, or experiencing themselves, then that begins to ripple, but it's too much. You know, you, it's like, it cannot, it is not work to be done in isolation. It is work to be done collectively. And it reminds me, it reminds me of something I say that sounds so silly, but just because when I'm teaching the physical practices, right. Teach asana practices, what we call asana practices, um, and something that I really try to instill in trainings is that the alignment cues are to distribute the effort, distribute the burden, and distribute the grace. And, and that is just the, the microcosm of the macro that we're talking about in community, then we take up slack for one another. We lean on one another's nervous systems and we lean on one another's insight and wisdom and, you know, eventually one would hope that there's a, a, a distribution of resource on every level where um, it's no longer like a, that only those who have all the means can follow their hearts. Not that they do, you know, certainly not that they do. But when someone's just trying to find enough money to put food on the table, they're not necessarily going to be in the position to lean into the heart because, you know, I mean, and not that that's not available. I'm just saying that, right. There are circumstances we need. So it, and when we feel when someone's really struggling in the, in the allowance to feel what they're really feeling, when those feelings become overwhelming to not feel alone in it, but to feel held and guided I'm reminded of um, an ancient Scandinavian custom of lying when someone was grieving, when someone was in mourning, that they would be brought into this the big 
public, the big collective longhouse and, and lay beside the fire, literally lay beside the fire. And it was living among the ashes is what it was loosely translated to mean. And meanwhile, everyone else in the village, everyone else in the community would take up this, would do the work that that individual would normally be doing, whether it's caring for their children or, you know, all of that. And so there's this like communal recognition, making explicit this person is in a liminal space and there's no expectation that they're not. And there's no time frame. like, well, this, the moon is now this, your morning is over. And I wish we had more ways to do that for one another, to say, you know, you're living among the ash right now. And instead of it being, again, the burden on one other person, that it becomes a distribution of it. So that then the grace can be distributed too and shared and not a sense of this individual to the exclusion of the collective that has had such devastating consequences. Ancient practice that I would love to see restored. I mean, just, yeah, the, the sangha, right? The the community truly as community. Mm-hmm. I love that idea of distributing the burden and distributing the grace. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I think it's an easy thing to in to teach when say someone's in a a warrior two and all the effort is in that front leg, this bent knee everything's piling forward, the sort of forward momentum, forward facing, and then just cueing into the back leg, just cueing into the back arm, just cueing into the lifting. Suddenly there's this distribution of it. There's an un- the felt sense of what it means to alleviate one part of oneself and to be within ourselves too. Like, am I always relying on my smarts? Am I always relying on my good looks? Am I always relying on my uh, humor? And what happens when I step into a situation and I let a less flexed muscle work is a distribution within ourselves as well. But I do think to, to our point of why and, and why it's so hard then, because so many people live these lives, not just of true isolation, but the feeling of isolation, even when surrounded by family members or whatever, because so much is taboo or so much is uh, uninvited or we just, we don't even know how to, it's like, it's like Charlie when, <laughs> Charlie, my dog, right? Like sometimes he just sits there and licks his paw and I can look and sometimes, yeah, you know, sure there's been a cut. Once in a while, there's been a little cactus or something. Sometimes I think he just licks it because something's bugging him and he doesn't know what to do. So he just licks. And we're like that. We, we don't, we don't always know what the source of the pain is or the source of the discomfort or the thing that's itching. And, you know, you got to get deeper than the surface to get to get to it. And a lot of our dynamics are just not set up to do that. So Jessica, can I just ask, we've, for someone listening who may feel stirred, like something that we've talked about, they feel they are at a crossroads. Grief is rising for them. They just have a knowing um, it's time to shift. What would you offer them? Where to begin? Well, first in that I would say what's rising is intelligence. There's an intelligence there. 
And then often it's a company, particularly if it's been held at bay for a long time or it's been sublimated in some way for a long time, it rises almost with a panic, almost with an urgency. And while some things really are urgent, sometimes it's not. It has the feeling of urgency because it is rising up. It's like holding a beach ball under the water. And so it explodes up. But it's, you know, so the first thing I think would be just the honoring, the honoring that something is arising. And what is arising is my internal, like that intrinsic intelligence. And I really then would say to seek the support and the safe space of someone to help lay it all out, like laying all the seeds out, not immediately trying to plant them, but laying them all out and doing that with someone uh, where that sense of panic and the sense of fear and all of that has, has some space to be seen and, and held and heard. And I would say, right, like if someone's hearing that and they're like, I don't have that person and this is not, you know, that's why you and I do the work we do. So, you know, we are those people, but it's also really nice when you have a direct intimate connection with someone to be able to do that. Um, That's the first thing I think. I think also just in a really practical way to become keenly aware in those moments when it feels overwhelming, how am I breathing at this, at this moment, just a practical tool because for every emotion, every psychological state, there's a breath pattern. And when, when it's feeling uncomfortable, overwhelming, often the breath is reflecting that the big big proponent of bringing the awareness to the breath because the breath, right. And the, and the breath is written into every name of the divine that I can think of, whether it's, you know, Ishwara, Krishna, uh, Jehovah, Allah, right. And the breath is breath. And so I think when we attune to that and um, let that become steady, you know, whether that's a one-to-one ratio of breath, something like that, um, those are some in- initial things. I think, uh, to trust that the, the change, the change doesn't always have to be sudden. And, and if it is sudden, that it's, I think about the teaching of create the conditions for something. So if I feel a lot of times what happens when there's a transformation arising, something arising, feeling stirred, like I, ne- I need to make this change. I need to leave this relationship. Or I need to change this job. That we put all the energy into that. And some of where I think we're better support is we put the energy into caring for ourselves in the transition because it is the transitions, whether we're talking about yoga practices on the mat or in life where we're most likely to get injured. And it's because we speed up become less conscious because we're grasping for the next known. And so I think a lot of care in the transition, slowing things down. And as I said, if there's someone with whom we can spread those seeds out and consider what we want to plant, not in the like, here's how it's all going to work and here's how it's all going to look. But in the, you know, sometimes I think in our, in the feeling that something needs to change, we we react instead of create. And I think the creation is the real 
voice that's rising up in us. Create, co-create your life. React no more. And so what is it? What do I need to do to be able to co-create right now in a way that doesn't rush my process? That's what comes to mind. Yeah, I think that's really, that's a beautiful offering. That's a beautiful beginning. I just want to say thank you. I'm so grateful. And I know so many lives have been touched by your decision to create Root and all the things you've created in your life. Um, I love you. I'm so grateful to call you teacher. I'm excited to see where you're creating in the future and how you're going to better the world because your presence absolutely is light in this world, Jessica. So thank you so much for being my guest today. I love you so much. Thank you. Love you too. Anything else you want to offer before we sign off? I don't think so. I, I, I feel full. I mean, we could probably talk for, we could have a 10 days. <laughs> yes. So for now we will sign off. Thank you. Thank you.